very long time. What is your verdict? Find the defendant guilty. The deadly narcotic. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Frank Hicks, Ian Roberts and Richard Sergi look at current events with a focus on the controversy surrounding the Attorney General and the role of the coroner in such circumstances. The reasons of the High Court in the Clive Palmer challenge to the WA lockdown laws are also considered. Lucas Shipway and Declan Byrne provide a summary of their upcoming CPD on class actions in construction law. Lastly, Ian Roberts and Richard Sergi discuss the Greenway Cycle Club and the benefits of cycling with Frank Hicks. My name's Frank Hicks and I'm joined today by Richard Sergi and Ian Roberts. G'day, Richard. G'day, Frank. G'day, Ian. Happy to be here. G'day, Frank. G'day, Richard. Uh, It's good to be back. Well, I'm sorry to our dedicated followers that we've been a little bit lax in getting our podcasts out, but this is it. Here it is. And what a time to land one into your inbox. Obviously, the media has been awash with the issues arising from the allegations against Christian Porter. There's been a very interesting debate going on within legal circles and political circles about the quote-unquote rule of law associated with such allegations and whether or not that might allow some form of inquiry. Before we look at that debate and the various sides to it, Richard Sergi, can I ask you what might be, in addition to a criminal inquiry and trial, a form of investigation still available in respect of the issues that have been raised and the circumstances in which they've occurred? Well, Frank, of course, there's been a bit of discussion in reference to a coronial inquest in South Australia, which I suspect may more likely than not be held into the death of the complainant who sadly took her own life last year. The coroner generally has some statutory functions which have to be carried out, and those are to identify the deceased and the place and time of that person's death. Coroners also have other functions, including discovering and investigating the manner and cause of a person's death, and that would typically include an investigation into the antecedent circumstances leading up to the death. Now, in this case, that may include an understanding of exactly what led to this lady to take her own life. During the course of any investigation, the coroner will ask the police, typically, to put together a brief of evidence. And once that's done, the coroner will then form a view as to whether or not an inquest is required. Some of the considerations a coroner takes into account may well be requests from family members or even um, whether the matter is a one of significant public interest. So, given the circumstances that we understand, it may well be that the coroner will form a view to have an inquest uh, into this matter, at which point I suspect many of these issues about which we have tidbits of information may come to light. They may or may not. It depends on what ambit the coroner wants to give to the inquest. Um, But yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens. Can I ask just a couple of questions about that process? Firstly, is there a standard of proof? We've obviously heard some debate about beyond all reasonable doubt and innocent until proven guilty. What sort of standard is applied with respect to the matters and indeed what sort of inquiry or object is the coroner directed to? Well that's an interesting point Frank. The There are no strict rules of evidence in coronial hearings. 
generally coroners are bound by two sort of fairly fundamental rules. That is procedural fairness and natural justice. Other than that, coroners are allowed to inform themselves in whatever manner they see fit. In practical terms, coroners and, and counsel appearing at inquest generally try to stick to the rules of evidence as we know them with resort to procedural fairness aspects rather than actual uh, rules of evidence as we might understand them in the Evidence Act. As to findings of fact, they are uh, done in the civil standard on the balance of probabilities, applying cases like Brigginshaw and Brigginshaw, and the coroner can form a view as to you know what may have led to certain things, certain findings of fact. And of course, coroners often investigate manner and cause of death and the circumstances with a view to making recommendations. If, for example, there are any deficits or defects in systems available to treat, for example, people suffering from mental health issues. So that's a context in which the coroner might be interested in, in having a hearing of the matter. And Richard, can I just ask, just jump in here. Sure. Um, what about compelling witnesses to um, well, come along and give evidence? Well, of course, witnesses are subject to subpoenas. Generally what happens in the course of preparing a brief of evidence is that the officer charged with investigating the matter and preparing the brief for the coroner will uh, make inquiries of various people who may be relevant people or people who the coroner might think have an interest in the proceedings and ask for statements from those people. It, it, there's a bit of an issue about whether a person is compellable to provide a statement. They're probably not, but certainly that person can be the subject of a subpoena issued by the coroner. So uh, they are compellable in that sense. And once they get into the witness box, um, they can, of course, at a particular point in time, seek the protection of a certificate if it's felt that uh, providing an answer to some questions may tend to incriminate them or expose them to a, a civil or a, or a criminal penalty, at which point the coroner will usually grant a certificate because the coroner is, and they're quite keen to make this known, not concerned at all with a finger-pointing exercise, but concerned with understanding the manner and circumstances of the deceased's death and one way of ensuring that they get that information is to provide a witness, if they're troubled by providing that evidence, with a protection of a certificate so that the coroner can hear from that witness about the particular issue. The only thing that a witness who has the protection of the certificate need to worry about in relation to the evidence they give being used elsewhere is if they have committed perjury in providing that evidence. So to that extent, it works in a similar way to a certificate that might be granted in civil proceedings. Thank you very much, Richard. That's uh, extremely informative and most beneficial. Ian, what have you made in general terms of the debate that's been going on, both in legal and political circles, around not the allegations per se, but the question of uh, the capacity of the law to entertain inquiries or other forms of investigation beyond the traditional criminal we spoke about this um, offline the other day, Frank and Richard, and, and there's, as you know, a debate going on about the extent to which the the government should in, hold some form of inquiry. But one thing that struck me is the suggestion by Justin Gleeson, who was the former Solicitor-General, that there be some advice obtained from the current Solicitor-General appears to have been rejected. Now, it seems to me a, a sensible option that doesn't have any real downside for the government politically or otherwise and wouldn't undermine the rule of law as the Prime Minister seems to be concerned with. So it's odd that that uh, opportunity wouldn't be grabbed by 
the government um, and it might, ass- might assist in, in working out how to move forward with this. Well, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned Justin Gleeson because in The Guardian he has published an article which he's developed further his observations with regards to these matters and I think he was somewhat motivated to do so by the assertion on the part of the Prime Minister that his previous intervention and suggestions were somehow partisan because he was not, quote-unquote, a fan of this government. But Justin Gleeson, in his article, identified that there were some basic principles about the working of the legal system. Firstly, obviously, the adjudication and punishment of criminal guilt can only be done by courts, which is obviously the feature that uh, the Prime Minister and others have fixed upon, having regard to the allegations. But the second feature of the system of justice is that courts also sit in civil jurisdiction and determine as between parties to the case on the balance of probabilities whether conduct has occurred which breaches a relevant legal norm and if so, what remedies might flow. The third feature that Justin Gleeson pointed to was the fact that in both the public and private sector, processes of administrative inquiry into allegations of misconduct are widely available as a matter of law. So he develops his argument by referring to the role and responsibilities of the Attorney General as the first law officer of the nation, and also the fact that the Solicitor General has access to a wealth of material, historical material, that it's not generally available, which may allow or inform some form of inquiry of this kind to go forward having regard to what happened in the past. So I think Justin Gleeson's intervention, certainly as a matter of law and the legal considerations which apply, is certainly very welcome. And I I think that, as you say, Ian, perhaps the Prime Minister might be well served to consider what he's said there rather than perhaps reacting to it simply as a political matter. But we've probably done enough about that, really. It's a subject which obviously is fascinating at the moment and occupying a lot of time. But something else which is fascinating is the actions and activities of one Clive Palmer. And you might recall that the High Court in November last year rejected Clive Palmer's challenge to the Western Australian restrictions arising for the COVID pandemic pursuant to Section 92 of the Constitution and the prohibition on the inhibition of interstate trade, commerce or intercourse. Ian, did you get a chance to read the decision that was handed down on the 24th of February? Uh, Frank, yeah, I did have a chance to look at it. It's an interesting case. Um, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but um, it was an interesting read in any event. I thought uh, when we got the result last year that without any reasons, that there may be some distinction drawn between physical movement and electronic interstate transaction-based trade and commerce and, and intercourse. Uh, but that's not the case, and I could shut that down, so I incorrectly predicted that. I thought there might have been something arising out of the advancements in technology since the, the drafting of the Constitution. But the court was, at least uh, the, the Chief Justice and Justice Keane were, were keen to lay down any distinction, really, between the what used to be regarded as the two limbs, the trade and commerce, and on the one end of the intercourse limb on the other, and said that they were effectively the same test would apply to both, and that a law that restricted interstate movement could defend Section 92. But otherwise, and historically it was an interesting decision when one looks at Justice Gagler's treatment of it as well. But largely, I suppose, predictable, generally follow the same approach that had been 
set out in Whitfield with minor qualifications. Is that what your reading gave you, Frank and, and Richard? I certainly thought that it was a very sensible outcome. I agree with you that uh, those of us with an interest in the history of the Federation can review Justice Gagler's decision, which reached back as far as the 1891 First National Australasian Convention and quoted from Sir Henry Parks dealing with principles associated with the powers and privileges and territorial rights of the several existing colonies remaining intact except in respect to such surrenders as may be agreed upon as necessary and incidental to the power and authority of the national federal government. So it was clearly a decision, at least so far as Justice Gagler was concerned, with deep historical roots as far as the nation is concerned and the operation of the constitution is concerned. But I think fundamentally the outcome was probably fairly assured, having regard to the decision in Cole and Whitfield where it was held that pursuant to Section 92 and the guarantee there that interstate trade, commerce and intercourse be, quote, absolutely free, end quote, is not a literal statement and that it is always the case that Section 92 may not apply to a law which has a purpose which is evidently not of a protectionist kind and ultimately it was stated, at least in paragraph 50 of the decision of the the Chief and Justice keen that it therefore should be accepted that a law which is directed to discriminating against or in fact discriminates against interstate movement is invalid as contrary to section 92 unless it is justified by reference to a non-discriminatory purpose it may be justified if it goes no further than is reasonably necessary to achieve a legitimate object and that is a statement of principle taken from an earlier decision of the High Court in Betfair number one. So having regard to those statements of principle and precedent, I really think that the ultimate outcome, whilst never assured, whenever anyone goes to any court, let alone the High Court, was probably as as clear as might be expected. Richard, did you have any thoughts about that decision in those matters? Look, I couldn't add too much except to observe that the High Court did or was in the fortunate position of having Cole and Whitfield which really provided some assistance to them in getting to the outcome, which really was the most practical one. Uh, I think if there was a different view taken, it would have led to some quite unfortunate outcomes in terms of public health, for one. Yes, I think that leaving aside the question of the law and the legal principles, whenever anyone has to weigh up the interests of Clive Palmer versus the interests of the entire population in the face of a pandemic there's a pretty clear way in which those scales are going to tip. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us, Richard and Ian. Thank you for joining us for this first podcast for 2021. And let's get on further with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I'm joined today by Lucas Shipway and Declan Byrne, who uh, in a short period of time on the 17th of March are going to be delivering a CPD lecture streamed through our services about class actions in the context of construction law. G'day, Lucas. How are you? Oh, I'm well, Frank. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And Declan? G'day, Frank. Nice to see you both. Now, before we launch into the construction aspect of this issue, can we just start with some basics for those that perhaps aren't as familiar with class actions as others? 
Lucas, what's actually involved in a class action and how does it get started? Well, a class action is in many respects no different from any other legal proceeding. You require a plaintiff, uh, a defendant or multiple plaintiffs and multiple defendants and the proceedings are commenced in the usual way, uh, broadly speaking. But what identifies or separates class actions from other types of proceeding is that there are what's called common questions, which are questions the resolution of which are seen as resolving a question that would apply to a, a large number of plaintiffs. The test is seven or more. If you can show that the issues in your proceeding will affect or resolve an issue that affects seven or more other people who might otherwise be able to bring their own proceedings, then you're able to get through the gate, as it were, to commence a class action. Now, Declan, where do we find the requirement for seven persons for the purposes of the commencement of a class action? All, all the requirements for class actions for Supreme Court proceedings are in the Civil Procedure Act Part 10, and that one in particular is the first section, which I think is 157. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we've seen class actions in a number of different contexts, uh, robo-debt, the pelvic mesh case, and of course, the Queensland floods. Have we seen any to date in the construction context, Lucas? There are a few already on foot, Frank. The case that number of listeners might be familiar with is the Opal Tower case. The plaintiff in that case is Mr and Mrs Williamson uh, and the name defendant is the Sydney Olympic Park Authority. There's also proceedings in relation to the Sydney Light Rail. That is a nuisance case. Uh, And thirdly, there are two separate proceedings in relation to combustible cladding. One proceeding in relation to a product manufactured by a German manufacturer and another proceeding in relation to a Chinese product. And just in the Opal Tower context, which obviously received a lot of media attention, what sort of claims are actually being made? Is it relating to the rectification of defects or the diminution in value as a result of the stigma arising from the publicity surrounding the evacuation that occurred on Christmas Eve a few years ago? What, what sort of things are we talking about? It is a claim uh, in which breaches of the statutory warranties in the Home Building Act are alleged, and so that is the cause of action. The relief that's sought is primarily relief in relation to the diminution or alleged diminution in value of the, the property, the lots that are owned by lot owners. So the members of the class are the lot owners. They say that the defects that they allege in the building have resulted in a diminution in the value of the lots that they each own. The owners corporation was initially named, I think, as a member of the class, but uh, has has opted out. So, and there is a separate proceeding that's been commenced by the owners corporation. So, that illustrates, I suppose, some of the complexity that can arise in this area as listeners are probably aware, generally speaking, defects in the in a building, a residential building, will be brought by the owners' corporation because those defects will typically be in the common property. That's the structure of the building, for, for to put it in simple terms. Uh, and generally, those that's where the defects manifest or present. In this case, though, the class is, as I say, 
primarily bringing a claim based on the loss of value in the lots themselves. And so that's why that action is being brought as a class action. And as I say, there's a separate action being brought by the owners corporation, which is the more typical action for the alleged damage to the common property itself. In that context, and I'll open it up to yourself, Declan, as well as Lucas, it's often the case that where you have a measure of damages arising from defects, it is the reasonable cost of rectification or the diminution in value associated with those defects. Is it the case that the class in the Opal Towers litigation is seeking both? I think, Frank, it's, it's unclear on the pleadings that have been filed, which are not all available on the, uh, the court website. I think given that the rectification work has largely been undertaken, that there is little, if any, rectification work that's yet to be undertaken. So presumably the only damages left to claim uh, would be any uh, diminution value of the properties. Well, that was my uh, understanding, I've got to say, that there had been a lot of rectification work done and, and attended to, obviously, in the context of the publicity associated with it. So there was an interest, at least on my part, as to what was still to be claimed. It would seem to be the stigma or the diminution in value arising from the fact of those defects, if not the media coverage of them some years ago. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, Declan, what are some of the advantages of class actions in this context? What, what are some of the things that would motivate a class of persons to proceed in this way rather than perhaps in uh, ways uh, in the past? Well, I, I think probably the first and foremost is it's an easy way to manage a large group of people. If, for instance, several thousand people have the same claim, rather than clogging the courts with 2,000 claims, you can get one proceeding that deals with the main causes of action and hopefully that resolves the liability question and then you just have to deal with the individual quantum for each of the individual claims so you'll substantially reduce the time in which it takes to resolve all those disputes I think it's a big advantage. Lucas are there any other advantages funding perhaps? Well funding is a big part of the story here and there's different views about the merits of the regime which is, is emerging in relation to class actions. Uh, that regime's changing over time and there's been recently some significant decisions in relation to the court's management of which um, uh, groups or law firms will be able to bring a case on a particular issue and we'll, we'll be dealing with some of those issues in uh, our presentation. But to pick up your point, I think there is a good argument to say that the presence of litigation funders in this space is an important causal factor in the growing frequency of these sorts of cases. It's possible now, to put it in very simple terms, to pitch a, a case to a funder and if you are able to persuade the funder that the case has sufficient merit and sufficient prospects to obtain funding from that funder to run the case, and that is something that's typically done by, by a law firm. That's done without necessarily involving or obtaining the consent of all of the members of the class. And so you can see that that's an easier way to get a case up and running than if it were necessary to have all the affected people combine or agree on some particular approach to the, um, to the litigation. Yes, that was something I was going to ask. Uh, any of us who have been involved in uh, litigation around defects, particularly in large residential developments, will have encountered the 
almost inexhaustible capacity for lot owners to engage in the democratic process, whereby it can be difficult to obtain instructions uh, as a result of uh, resolutions proposed and sought to be passed at general meetings, whether extraordinary or, or ordinary. Does this process give some streamlining or advantage to perhaps not having to herd all of the necessary cats into the one corral? That's a good question, Frank. Um, it may be that that's the case. I think at the moment we can only say we've, a, we've got a very small sample from which to form a view. Class actions do seem to be a burgeoning area, but at the moment uh, we haven't seen a rash of class actions by owners in uh, multi-unit residential dwellings. Opal Tower is, as far as I'm aware, the only class action of that kind underway, at least in New South Wales. So it may be that that's the future of residential multi-dwelling litigation, but at the moment it's a bit early to say, I think. And Declan, would that largely be because many of these claims concern common property and the owner's corporation uh, as the or the executive to the owner's corporation has the right to take action itself. So there's not the necessity to um, have a class action of all the owners to pursue those rights. I think, I think that's right, Frank. I think I think the majority of those defects claims, which there are uh, a lot of, are always brought by the, uh, well, not always, typically brought by the owners' corporation. And it's only in the rare circumstances where the individual lot owners suffer additional damage that they get involved. And that would be the sort of thing like stigma and diminution in value that yes. was seen in uh, Opal Towers and, and might arise again in the future, depending upon what sort of actions might occur. Yes. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for that. I think we're all look, looking very much forward to your CPD presentation on the 17th of March. We have to bear in mind, of course, this is not a CPD presentation. This is simply the teaser to get you there. It is sold out, but it is available uh, through streaming services and wherever good websites are sold. So thank you very much for joining us today uh, on our podcast. Lucas, it's been great to talk to you about class actions, and I'm really looking forward to chairing the CPD in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much, Frank. Look forward to it. And Declan, I know you'll be celebrating St. Patrick's Day, Declan Byrne, that is, uh, by uh, <laughs> no being sober start. at 5.15pm on St. Patrick's <laughs> Day and doing a CPD presentation. Um, it's, it's in the greatest traditions of your Dublin heritage. It's true. There's no better way to celebrate. Gotta see things, see new places and brand new things, gotta go places and do things, maybe to I'm joined again by Richard Sergi and Ian Roberts. G'day, Ian and Richard, for the second time for this podcast. G'day, Frank. G'day, Richard. G'day to both of you. Now, I'm going to ask you to break a fundamental rule and ask you to talk about Cycle Club. Now, the Greenway Cycle Club, uh, when was it established? Ian? Probably soon after the floor was established, I think. Um, a number of us who were foundation members, um, cycle, Richard and, and I cycle and others who joined the floor from other places um, were keen cyclists. And so almost from the get-go, we started talking about riding together and, and getting some kit and getting it all sorted out. Is that your recollection, Richard? It is, Ian. And I know that uh, you're a bit of a fashion clothes horse, so you took it upon yourself to immediately be in charge of organising the kit, and you've done a fantastic job with that. We have complete get-up 
It looks fantastic when we're all together on the road. It's good fun. When we're all in a group, um, it looks good. We're all wearing the same kit. Once we start pedalling, it um, becomes apparent that we're not actually as good as we look. <laughs> yes, well, I was going to say that you you may be observed as, the, oh, what is it, mammals? <laughs> <laughs> and it's all lycra, I assume. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And in fact, you know, some of us just wear it around when we're nowhere near a bicycle. Yeah, because it's so uh, slimming. Yeah, it is. And uh, it What is it, white? <laughs> well, the current one's dark blue, I think. Yes, uh, I think darker colours are preferable, Frank, actually, and we might stick to that going yeah, forward. A, a lack of stripes. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly horizontal stripes. <laughs> well, so tell me about what the, the first event that the Greenway Cycle Club entered. Was it a social ride or was it more uh, of the organised rides? I can't remember which came first, but we we started having um, two annual events, a, a Christmas ride and an Easter ride. And I've got to say that this came about because of the demise of the old firm Henry Davis York, who used to do this themselves. And we took over that mantle when, when that firm uh, ceased to exist. A lot of the people from the firm who rode in that um, those rides rode, now ride with us in our rides. But we have a, an Easter ride and a Christmas ride regularly. We didn't have last Christmas's ride because of COVID because it coincided with the Northern Beaches of lockdown, unfortunately. But we'll be back up and running probably soon after Easter, I suspect. Um, we, do, we have been in a few organised events such as the Bob and Head Classic um, a few times, which always followed by a great breakfast. Um, and I think that's the only official event, isn't it, Richard? I, I think so, Ian. And and you mentioned the bobbin head ride or the bubbo, as it's known. I recall that uh, my first outing there um, was a little um, un, uh, unplanned in that I'd originally decided to do the 50-odd the kilometre event and I was head down and bum up and making fantastic time uh, before I came to a fork in the road which gave me two options to finish the 80 kilometer ride or to do the 104 kilometer ride, at which point I realized I had somehow gone off the track. But notwithstanding that, um, it was it was very good fun. I, I really encourage people if there are interests to come along. It's not super competitive. In fact, the opposite. It's really just to get out, get the wind in your hair or on your scalp if you don't have any hair and enjoy some coffee and breakfast afterwards it's it's quite good fun i had a similar experience on my first one too actually i toward in the last 20 odd kilometers of the 104 um k race or ride whatever it is there was a, a girl who was pretty strong rider by the looks of it i jumped on her wheel for the last along the the, the section along motorvale road and we were moving along at a fair clip and at some point i said to her do you know where the turnoff is for the you know the finish line, she said, "I'm not in the ride. I'm just out doing my own thing." <laughs> I realised I'd gone off course, so I had to do a bit of backtracking and find my way back to the original course uh, and then to the finish line. Yeah. So we don't have an orienteering club, uh, Frank, as you <laughs> may have gathered. We should. Well, it sounds like we might need one at least, at least <laughs> to learn some lessons. But uh, well, um, what are some of the benefits that you both see in cycling? You're obviously very keen on it and regular cyclists. Leaving aside the obvious of uh, physical fitness and those sort of things, what, what do you find in it that keeps you uh, going back to the pedals? 
Well, I think it's a form of relaxation, obviously. it's like Some people do yoga, some people do different sports and so on, but it's, it's a really good uh, escape from what is a reasonably stressful type of job that we have. I always find, and I remember when I had readers, I used to always tell them that everyone needs at least one non-law obsession. So you need to have something that you're really passionate about or keen to do because it takes you right away from this job and that allows you to uh, freshen your, your mind and apart from the physical uh, fitness benefits that you get, it really does clear your head and allow you to think more um, uh, th- think more quickly on your feet and, um, and just deal with the, the pressures and the stresses of this job. I think that's very good advice. You do need something else and you do need something that's not law-related that you're looking forward to or that you're planning, even if it's just uh, going with a ride with a mate on a morning or an afternoon or whatever it is, particularly during the, the holidays and the lockdown was quite good for that. But, yeah, I think that's good advice, Ian. You do need something uh, away from the law, whatever it might be. In our case, it's cycling in part. But it's, uh, it, it does keep you, I think, uh, well, it helps me sort of get to sleep because it makes me more tired. Um, of course, you know, you might still wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. To watch but the you don't have as much trouble, as much trouble falling asleep. So, yeah, there's definite benefits, I think. And just getting out and enjoying, you know, the society of other people when you're having a, a coffee or, a, you know, pastry afterwards, it's good. I suppose one of the other aspects of it is is that uh, obviously you can't listen to headphones or uh uh, even podcasts whilst you're cycling. Um, so it does focus your own mind and allow you to, as you say, in, in clear it without perhaps the distraction or the white noise of you know Spotify or, or uh, other matters as well. So it is very much a, um, yourself with your own thoughts. And uh, do you do much thinking about your cases when you're out on the road or do you simply try to clear your mind of everything and, um, and enjoy the circumstances or perhaps a bit of both? Uh, probably a bit of both, but I, more the the latter. I, I try to use it as a way of not thinking about work. But I have been out on long rides where I've walked myself through some of the things I want to go through in a case, um, perhaps. But more often than not, I, I try to use it as a way of forgetting about the job and, and enjoying the atmosphere and the ride and, and you know, the surroundings. And Richard, are you the same? I think I'm pretty much the same, Frank. I mean, one of the good things about cycling in the way that it takes your mind away is that there's just enough required of you when you're riding to force you in a way uh, to think about something else than what might be troubling you and waking you up at three o'clock in the morning. So to that extent, it gives you a break, which I think we all need from uh, what can be at times quite uh, stressful. Well, look, thank you very much, gentlemen, for your observations and uh, and your interest in cycling. It is a, a fantastic uh, way to, as you say, get fit and clear your mind. And uh, do you have something coming up in the near future? Uh, you mentioned the, the Bobbo. Uh, is well, that, is we're going soon? to have it. That's in Saturday or Sunday week. Um, and we're, we're probably going to have a, a slightly later Easter ride, probably after Easter, and if anyone's listening who is interested in joining us, we normally, uh, it's a simple format, we normally meet in Queen's Square uh, one morning, it's, it's a weekday morning, right out around La Perouse and somewhere like that. We're back at 
uh, Queen Square by about eight o'clock, and we have a breakfast together with everyone, and everyone's got time then to get dressed and go to work and get on with their job. So if anyone wants to join us, they should contact us, and it's probably easiest to contact the front of house people and let us know that you're keen to join us, and we're, everyone's welcome. And, of course, the details for all those sort of rides you will be able to find on the Greenway Chambers website. Uh, they'll be posted there and um, the capacity to join and uh, come along and get fit and think about something other than law will be there for you. So Absolutely. thank you very much. Uh, thank, oh, sorry about that, Ian. But, yeah, thank sure. you very much, Ian. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking, cycling with you. And I hope I'm not sure what the consequences of the breaking of the first law of Cycle Club is by talking about it, but whatever it is, I hope it's not too severe. We'll have Thanks, a Frank. word with each other. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review? You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, your favourite podcast app, or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.